Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Friday the 10th of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The photographs of Margaret Cash and six of her seven children sleeping in Talagarda Station on Wednesday night are very disturbing or heartbreaking as the headline on the front page of the Daily Star depicts the situation. The Mirror describes it as shame. The Cash family feature in all of today's newspapers. The Sun quotes the family as saying will be haunted forever. The Irish Examiner claims in its headline, however, that there was no need for the family to sleep in Talagarda Station, referring to the official response from the Dublin Region Homeless Executive. But the Irish Independent reports how homeless families have been advised to stay at Garda Stations 112 times in recent months. It's from page headline is the new normal families sleeping in Garda stations while the Irish Times also says this is not new furthermore that paper reports on concerns Tusla has about children sleeping in cars and also how the homeless may be moved out of Dublin to free up hotel rooms to accommodate people travelling to see the Pope when he visits here in two weeks time. Solidarity TD Paul Murphy is uh, the TD local to Talagarda Station. He's on the line. And Paul, whilst this happened in your local Garda Station, it's clear that this happens all of the time, all over the country. Why is it, do you think, that when we see some photographs of people in this situation that we react so strongly? Well, I think um, a picture can tell a thousand words. Um, and that's the, in a sense, the, the, the shock power of the, the picture for people is it, it brings home the, the reality that you know, so many families are facing with its extreme end of it uh, in terms of those who are forced into you know, sleeping with their kids in, in a garden station. But it's it's happening, um, and it's you know one of the horrific consequences of the housing crisis in all its different uh, facets. Um, I think Margaret is really to be congratulated for you know putting her story out there for putting yourself out there to be uh, attacked as she has been in some quarters in social media and everything else um, but in doing so just you know I think bringing a hopefully public discussion and attention to bear Why has she been attacked? Um, well there's, there's as always happens with these sort of things I think if you, if you go onto her Facebook page there's people saying you know well why did she have why did she have so many children um, why didn't she have somewhere to stay trying to place responsibility on it for, for mm. her 
but obviously I'd say that the majority of people who are mm-hmm. responding and looking at it are a sense of sympathy and solidarity um, with her and her kids in the situation mm. that they're that they're in. And can you answer that question, though, to some degree? Why was it that she sought emergency accommodation on Wednesday evening? Well, my understanding is that she has been homeless uh, for uh, a period of time, for a period of months, I think, since mm. she lost, like many people lost, um, she was effectively evicted from uh, private rented accommodation, I'm not sure what, mm. and a pretext that the landlord used to, to, to get rid of her from, from, from the private rented accommodation, but, you know, quite feasibly, it may have been the fact that he basically wanted to, to pull up the, the rent and found an excuse to get her out. That's what happens in many, mm. many cases. I don't know. I'm not speaking about the details of the case. Sure, but do, do, um, you, do, do you know where she stayed on Tuesday night, for example, or Monday night? Well, my, my understanding is that she would have been staying in... Uh, emergency homeless accommodation right. so in, in like a hotel or whatever that's what normally happens I mean, mm. we deal with you know a huge number of, of families on a weekly basis who would come into us who would be going into focus who would be going into the council mm. and they will normally end up being accommodated in you know like a hotel or a homeless hub or something like that and you don't um, know why she wasn't able to go back to that hotel or hub or wherever she stayed on Tuesday on Wednesday because I mean this is a, a dreadful situation to see such young children sleeping uh, on the closest thing to the streets as you can get which is the kindness of members of the police force who allowed them to stay in the station uh, we're talking about one year old child uh, children up to 11 years of age Exactly. It's only one step um, removed from, from being on the streets. Um, what I presume is the case, um, and what I think is the case from her situation, but what is the case for lots of people that we talk to, is that the hotel is then full. Um, because, you know, say that there's a number of local hotels in, in Palo which mm. uh, take in homeless people, um, but the council pays them to take in homeless people. Um, but if they are uh, full with people who have booked ahead and so on, well, then there's there's no place for them. Mm. Um, and so that, that happens. People are then, people perhaps, you know, have emergency accommodation in a hotel for a couple of nights. Then they go back on the, you know, on the, the third morning, let's say, mm. and they're told, no, unfortunately, there's no place available. Um, I, I was listening to the radio earlier, and there was, I think, Peter Burke was on RTE and saying, oh, well, people should just contact the Dublin uh, region homeless executive. This is a Finnegale TD, Peter Burke. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that's correct. Mm-hmm. That's the instruction that you know we would encourage people to ring them. But but often you ring those services, and they may say, oh, "Unfortunately, we don't have anywhere uh, available." Mm. Or uh, as far as I know, in Margaret's case, what was made available was a hotel in Meath that didn't have enough space for all of her children that uh, only had space for I think five of the six of her children who were who were with her as far as I understand. And this, uh, this, this is uh, going back to that headline in the examiner that there was no need for them to sleep in the guard station. There was a, an offer of accommodation made but it was at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, they were in Talagarda station and the hotel you're talking about was in Meath. Yeah and how, how exactly were they supposed to get to Meath? I mean the cost of travelling to Meath at, at that hour um, you know, would would be presumably well out of the reach of a family who is who is homeless. Yeah, um, well, you'd hope that the one-year-old, for example, would be asleep, uh, let alone being it, bundled into a car or a taxi or whatever it is to get there. It, it, exactly. So, I mean, to claim that that was some sustainable offer of um, accommodation is, you know, alternative accommodation mm. is clearly not. 
it's not credible. And she has seven children. One of uh, the children uh, has just come out of hospital and has been staying with family, I think. Uh, so that leaves six. Uh, but uh, the offer of accommodation in that hotel in Mead was for herself and five of the children, was it? That, that, that's my understanding. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm not sure what exactly the proposal was. It's another reason that it wasn't a viable uh, offer. And so, and I think all these things are being thrown up to say, oh, you know, it's not as bad as, as this. There were alternatives to her sleeping in the Garda station. But when you go and investigate it, there weren't alternatives to her sleeping in the Garda station. And of course, again, I mean, a representative of the GRA was on saying, you know, mm. Garda stations aren't appropriate places for homeless people to be sleeping. Absolutely. And the Garda are to be commended for, you know, uh, facilitating them in the best way that they can. They're obviously not trained for this whatsoever. Mm. Um, but people are left in situations of, of having no alternative. And clearly the alternative facing uh, Margaret uh, was to sleep in a Garda station or to sleep on in a, in a park. Uh, and the Gardaí seem to be at their wit's end uh, because they don't know how to deal with this, they're not trained to deal with this, and they don't have the facilities to deal with it. They also are looking at people who are uh, in a most inappropriate environment uh, where they're trying to process crimes and that sort of thing. Uh, and then on top of all of that, uh, they're human beings, uh, which I, I think is evident in this story because the Gardaí and Tala, I think, went out on Thursday morning, yesterday morning, and bought this family breakfast. Yeah, um, so they're, they're trying their best to deal with a difficult um, situation. And I think, you know, the answer is, is not to say, oh, well, Cardi should have proper training to be able to deal with this. Um, that would just be accepting that this situation is going to continue. And, mm. and like, you know, we go from a situation where hotels are turned into homeless homes to guard stations being turned into homeless homes. And the answer is to have a serious approach to dealing with the housing crisis mm. and unfortunately that you know that, that hasn't happened and I think there's only so long the government can get away with saying oh well you know Rome wasn't built in a day this takes time etc Fine Gael has been in power now this eighth year that it's in, in power um, they need to take some responsibility and they need to take some serious action um, because all the indications are is that, the, that there's still a very small number of public housing um, being, being built by the, the state um, instead, there's a massive um, amount of, of subsidy to, to private uh, landlords or private investment uh, trusts through the likes of the HAP scheme and things like that. Um, and it's just it's just a disaster. And yeah. you have to say that the the whole model, which Fine Gael has based its idea on again and again and again, of relying on incentivizing private developers and private landlords to provide housing, just has not and does not uh, work. Hmm. and they just prove incredibly reluctant, unfortunately, to move away from that model. Right, and I'm not particularly surprised, I'm sure anybody who's ever spent any time on social media wouldn't be particularly surprised to hear that Margaret has come under attack. And I don't know Margaret's story, it's just typical of social media. Uh, but whatever about Margaret and uh, what led to the situation that she and her family has found themselves in, the children are certainly innocent and completely innocent. And when you look at the photographs of these young children and how they've been forced to sleep on these plastic chairs, trying to cuddle up over two of these chairs, uh, as you can see in the photographs, if anybody is in a news agency this morning or on the internet, they'll see it. Uh, it 
it is, as one of the papers said, shameful. And it's something for all of us to be ashamed of. But this is essentially what we're deciding as a society. This is what we're allowing to happen. This is what we know is happening. This is what we talk about on the radio, on this programme, on all of the radio programmes every single day. This is what the newspapers have been reporting for eight years, as you say. But we continue to... Uh, look for tax breaks and an extra fiver in our take-home pay and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's only when we see a photograph like this that it brings it home. I mean, that's that point about the impact of this on, on children. There was a study done, I think it was by Barnardos, about a year ago, um, about the impact, the long-term impact on children's mental health as a result of, of homelessness, um, as a result of, you know, this extreme insecure conditions, extreme instability, moving from place to place, the anxiety uh, that comes with that, all of the upset uh, involved in it, uh, potentially being separated from one parent or, or another. Um, you know, th- this is having societal impacts. Mm. Uh, it's noticed by teachers uh, in, their, in, in schools where, you know, you have, in some schools, you have a number of, of homeless uh, mm. children there. And people can just, you know, the, the picture makes it very real mm. as to what sort of impact these conditions have. And, and let's remember that, like, you know, the, the quote-unquote better conditions that they were facing previously was simply being in, in a hotel, which is also completely inappropriate, mm. uh, where you don't have place place where you can safely play uh, as a kid, you can't go outside. Do you know what I mean? All, mm. all those problems, and this is just an extreme, extreme, uh, extreme case. I think all we need to do is put ourselves in that situation as adults, to put ourselves in that situation tonight, uh, that if we had nowhere to go and we went up uh, uh, to try and shelter in a, a guard station uh, and uh, what they might say to us, how they might put us out, uh, they might treat us one way or another and we wouldn't know. I mean, that's the insecurity of it. Uh, and then what will we do the following night? Will they allow us to stay there or whatever? And then to take that image uh, and to think of being in that situation when we were children ourselves, uh, when you had that reliance on people to make you feel secure. No, it's it's absolutely horrifying. And I, and I think the question people will have is, OK, well, what can, what can people do about it? Um, and, I mean, in my opinion, what we, we need to do is work to build a movement on housing to force action and to force a change of policy by the government. Um, because until you have, um, and it's not the only thing, but the, the central thing is a serious plan to build uh, public housing, social and affordable housing. That's, the, the, you know, at, at the, the root of the answer to this uh, question. And the government isn't going to agree to do that lightly. They have to be forced uh, to do that. Um, and so we need to think about what, what that would look like. Um, there's a very inspiring occupation taking place at the moment in, in Summerhill uh, Parade. Uh, in, in north inner city Dublin, um, where people occupied what are vacant properties now for months. But they're uh, illegally yeah. occupying. They, they are, yeah. They're squatting. They're, yeah, they're engaged in, in civil disobedience to highlight the fact that you have these um, vacant properties. Um, which but that puts you back in this situation of being a, a lawmaker advocating people breaking laws. Um, for me, I think it's a question of, look, what's, what's going to force action and change on this uh, issue um, and fundamentally you know this whole thing comes down to do we place the, the right of landlords the right of banks the right of developers mm. to maximise but their two, profits but, 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 but your argument is essentially that two wrongs make a, a right isn't it uh, I mean if, if we didn't have this other problem uh, you'd oppose squatting wouldn't you 
Well, I don't think it's a wrong in this context of this massive... Well, that's what I said. Not, if, we, if we weren't sure. in this context, you'd oppose squatting, wouldn't you? If it, yeah, if, if everybody had access to the homes... That yeah, they, so, that two, they, so, they so, so it's a, so it's a wrong, and that's the point. Two wrongs will make a, a right. I mean, there's another aspect to today's story. Uh, we're in what's normally called the silly season, where mm-hmm. the flow of news is slow, so uh, this makes for a great front-page family in distress, uh, and we can all tut-tut about it or shed crocodile tears about it or whatever way it is Uh, but it does bring it home to us Uh, having said that we've been talking about this every month for God knows how many years when the homelessness figures are released and this is up for people to search within themselves look at their hearts and to to say is this what uh, we want to happen with the country that we're building uh, that we're forming as a a society Uh, because there is an effort quite obviously, to bury this type of news. Uh, We've seen people taken off the homelessness list when they are homeless. Uh, And there's uh, an effort now that instead of us talking about it every month, we'll only be talking about it every three months because they're talking about publishing the homelessness figures every quarter instead of monthly. That would certainly suit them because they've been engaged in, you know, an incredible campaign of manipulation of the figures, of putting pressure on councils to try and keep the figures below the the 10,000 mark for, for homelessness. And in reality, by... You know, the previous standards of counting, there's no question now that the figures have gone well over um, 10,000. And I think, you know, we we can't let them. Um, We have to use the fact of the the, the heightened awareness now around the crisis as a result of Margaret taking the the brave stance of putting herself and her pictures uh, out there. Um, Use the occupation that's happening in in, uh, Summerhill Parade um, to, to try to build a big, big movement on housing. I mean, there, there was instances of that uh, almost two years ago around Apollo House, um, whereby, again, there was huge public attention, thousands of people volunteered uh, to help. The government made some promises and the occupation uh, ended. The government, in reality, unfortunately, didn't follow through on uh, those promises and things have continued uh, to get worse. Um, so th- there is a plan for a, a major national demonstration in uh, the middle of, of September, um, that kind of plans for and so on will be announced in the next while. And if we could get tens of thousands of the people, tens of thousands of people on the streets, uh, then I think it, it can have an impact. And together with actions um, like the occupation in, in Summer Hill can be mm. the start of a kind of movement that can that can bring about the change that we need. Yeah, well, the other thing is, of course, if you brought out all the homeless, you'd have 10,000 people on the streets, which is uh, hard to even uh, think of. Uh, but that is uh, the reality of uh, the situation as we speak. But thank so you I for... I mean, one of the problems mm. there is, is, is precisely that there's 10,000 people homeless, yeah. but they're in such extreme difficulties, you mm. know, mm. you know, in terms of organising their own lives. No, and I, I didn't mean that. I just, just, no, I've, just I've, putting I've, it into context. Yeah. It's, mm. it's, it's why it's up to all of us mm. to say this isn't just about them. Everybody is affected, or loads of people are affected by the housing crisis in one way or another, and we all need to take a stand. Paul Murphy, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. The HSE is being called on to provide funding for the recruitment of physiotherapists in County Meath, or as the Meath Chronicle puts it on the front page of the paper this week, a GP blasts a two-year wait for physiotherapy appointments. Dr Mary Scully is a GP with Abbey House Medical Centre, and she's been telling me why people would typically need physiotherapy. Well, there's a couple of different types of patients that need physiotherapy. Uh, one, it might be the patient, say, with, you know, um, 
back pain that has come on over the maybe the previous you know couple of weeks or um, days, and um, they've been trying you know painkillers, and you think okay they're going to need a little bit of physio, and you can refer them for some physio. Um, other ones are more maybe long-standing patients with more chronic sort of symptoms that you know, you're at your kind of getting to your wits end with kind of trying to sort them out and you think, well, physio is going to maybe help um, and maybe make a little bit of a difference and maybe teach them, for example, in back pain, you know, about back exercises they can do, a home exercise program, things like that. So back pain would be a very common reason for referring to physio. And then there are other musculoskeletal things like, you know, neck pains, you know, injuries, um, uh, rehab after injuries, um, you know, fractures, things like that. So they're kind of really boiled down to mainly the acute and the chronic. And the chronic are the ones we're having difficulty with because of the sudden increase in waiting lists. So I only discovered this in the last week or two. I knew the waiting lists were always going to be around about six months. They seem to be getting much longer. And so when a patient, uh, one of the kind of the chronic ones I've mentioned, who has like a long-standing problem with his back, um, and I'd referred him back in January. And in the last couple of weeks, he hadn't heard anything. So I suggested to him that he would ring <coughs> and find out. And he rang me back to say that uh, they were, he was told the waiting list could be up to two years. Mm. Um, and so I I couldn't. I couldn't actually believe it, and I said, "I'll have to ring and, and talk to myself and see is this correct or not." Yeah. And so, I spoke to um, the chief physio, and he did confirm that indeed the waiting list for any kind of chronic or long-standing or recurrent problem um, could be up to two years. At the moment, it's about a year and eight months because they are currently wa- working off. January 2017 referrals. Uh, and this, as you say, is in circumstances of people who have chronic problems. Uh, if it's an injury, a break or a sprain or something like that, uh, that physiotherapy would be available quicker, is it? Yes, he did take pains to advise me that anything that I considered to be urgent or anything that was quite acute hmm. to mark it as such on the referral and that they would be prioritised um, there are, they have two categories of referral when they see the referrals in physio. They prioritise them into, you know, a sort of a priority one or a priority two. Mm. So priority one would be things like acute injuries, yep. um, you know, uh, sort of you know, acute back pains, um, you know, fractures, things like that that would really need urgent physio. And they do prioritise them that way, and they will be seen within two, three, four weeks. Uh, and from the patient's point of view, is there much of a, a difference uh, between the two scenarios in that both patients are going to be suffering pain, both patients need physiotherapy to build themselves up in whatever part of the body it is so that they can return to some sort of normality and in both circumstances you are are you not talking about a quality of life? Absolutely, and in fact it's probably more so in the case of the people with the chronic or recurring back pain or neck pain or whatever it is, you know, because mm. they are experiencing, experiencing symptoms for much longer. And, and so you really kind of want to try and tackle those ones um, and try and get them back into having a normal quality of life. The acute injuries are probably likely enough to settle, you know, at some stage, possibly with or without physio, mm. physio would probably be a help. It's certainly. a boost, yes, absolutely, mm. uh, in most circumstances. Uh, but in terms of people who have chronic problems, uh, why is the delay in them coming to you or seeking physiotherapy? 
Well, possibly one of the reasons we delay referring is exactly because we know that the waiting lists are quite long and we sort of, you know, go, oh, what's the point, you know, because like the waiting lists are so long and you're just adding another body to the waiting list. So it's a deterrent in itself for us referring to physio because we know that the waiting lists are going to be long. Mm. And so, you know, we often suggest alternative things. For example, you know, um, maybe the patient can afford a little bit of private physio, a couple of sessions even just to get them going. Mm -hmm. They can look up stuff on the internet. Um, A lot of patients do that. You know, they can look up home exercise programs. And sometimes we we encourage them to do that. And in fact, we have, you know, know, some exercises that we can show them to do ourselves. So we often try alternative things other than you know, sort of going to the last resort, which it's, it's physio now seems mm. to be in those kind of cases uh, because of the waiting list. And I think it's entirely down to, it's it's a staffing issue. Um, the physio in the hospital, uh, in Beaufort House, which is the, the community physio, um, tells me that really it's himself and one other physio who is only part-time. Mm. And you're calling on the HSE to address that as readers of The Chronicle will see this week. In fact, I imagine uh, that your inability to refer people for the care that they need in a timely fashion has led to a frustration uh, that has seen you speak to The Chronicle to us today uh, and probably is frustration on top of frustration uh, about what has become the norm, which is to wait for healthcare in this country. Uh, We're speaking to you in a, a week where we've seen 500 people on trolleys in hospital emergency departments unheard of in the month of August. A million people on waiting lists for hospital procedures. Uh, You're talking about 85,000 people waiting for an endoscopy, uh, 135 people waiting for diagnostics, inpatient cases over 100,000, half a million people waiting for outpatient appointments and almost 70,000 people waiting for therapies. So this is uh, normal healthcare or lack of care in this country, is it not? Yes, and it's the GPs who are having to face these patients every day when they can't get these appointments. You know, the hospitals have their own issues, certainly, but they don't see the patients every day who are trying to access these therapies or are waiting on outpatients or, you know, uh, you're you're sort of faced with maybe sending them into hospital Mm. and then they're going to be on trolleys and the patients nearly beg you to try something other than to send them into hospital. So, you know, as GPs, we're facing these patients and having to deal with them every day. Okay, and they're not the type of people that the rest of us are particularly aware of uh, because if somebody's got back pain, uh, perhaps it prohibits what they can do. Uh, They may not be able to work uh, as they'd like to, may not be able to walk uh, as they'd like to, lift things as they'd like to. uh, And that may not be obvious to the rest of us, but as said earlier, the quality of life uh, is hugely diminished. Yes, absolutely. All right, Dr Scully, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. 20 of uh, the 300 Ryanair flights out of Ireland have been cancelled today. It's uh, the fifth time pilots are striking here at Ryanair. They're joined by their German counterparts who will see 250 flights cancelled. At all, there's almost 400 flights cancelled across Europe with pilots along with the Irish and the Germans in Belgium, Sweden and the Netherlands taking part in this dispute. 55,000 passengers are affected, it said. Bernard Harbour, Head of Communications with Forza, joins us. Good morning to you, Bernard, and thanks for joining us.
is uh, I think there's a, a lot of confusion that is to say that a lot of us are confused uh, uh, in terms of what this dispute is actually about because it seems to differ between pilots and cabin crew and from country to country and from trade union to trade union. Yeah, I think the best way of explaining it is that there's not one dispute here, but there's five different disputes taking place today. And in each of the different countries, uh, as I understand it, and I've been following this through the press, uh, there's, there are different issues at stake. So in Ireland, as you're aware, the issue that we've been in dispute about, and this is our fifth one-day strike today, is the uh, desire of pilots to achieve a fair and transparent method of transferring pilots between bases, which is part of the business of Ryanair, part of the business of of aviation. But at the moment, it's been done in a way which is entirely at the discretion of management and in a way that pilots feel uh, is, you know, they could be transferred thousands of miles from family and home on the whim of a manager. So, but but I I understand the confusion that may be there Mm. because as I see it, as I read it, I should say, in Germany, the main issue is pay, and in the other countries where there are strikes today, there are different issues again, so it's not easy to follow all of the different moving parts. It all comes down to poor industrial relations, though, does it not? Well, my own view is that uh, Ryanair is struggling uh, with the... Well, it's, well, let me put it this way. Back in December, it decided it would recognise trade unions for the first time in its 30-year history, 30-plus years history, uh, I believe that they were genuine in that decision and that they do want to talk to trade unions as the representatives of their staff. But I think they lack the experience and they clearly uh, are struggling to get to change the culture in order to make that work. So if I can talk about the Irish dispute, I mean, this is something that we believe could have been settled very easily through negotiations. It's not a money issue. Uh, it, you know, it's a very low cost associated to it. It's the kind of agreement we're looking for uh, that exists in pretty much every other airline in one form or another. Uh, And we think that that could have easily been achieved through negotiations. But instead, uh, we find ourselves in a position where it's now um, three weeks since we've even spoken to the company in a room. uh, And thankfully, we've got a change in that scene Mm. as much as we've got an independent third party process kicking off next week. Uh, but uh, I, I think there is a degree of... Um, and perhaps Kieran Mulvey will decide which room you'll meet in next week when you do meet, uh, because you've been arguing with each other about where to meet. Well, I take your point. Uh, I think we've got over that. I mean, in, re- mm. in recent weeks, we've we met a couple of times over recent weeks. And but that in itself does tell a, a, its own story, doesn't yeah, it, about it, how it, bitter it, this dispute is, how yeah, poor the relationship it, exactly. is. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and there are many years of, uh, you know, many years of kind of history uh, in the company where, the, as people know, I don't need to tell mm, you, mm. your listeners this, that the company was very hostile towards trade unions. Uh, and I think that, uh, as I say, I think that they've changed their approach but it's, it's not always easy to convince staff of the bona fides of the company or that the company is genuinely committed to uh, negotiating outcomes. And I have to say that the move the week before last where they said they threatened to either sack or transfer mm. to Poland 300 staff as a result of the strike was interpreted by our people as an escalation, as a hostile act. And in, in fact, it actually, uh, if you like, it uh, uh, doubled down on the resolve of pilots not to be... Not to be. Is uh, that wise? Uh, I mean, there's no doubt it, it was a hostile act. I think it'd be very difficult to see it in any other way. But uh, the hostility is that you're running the risk of negotiating yourselves out of a job, or a job in this country at least. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, our hope is that it won't come to that. We don't think it was a we don't think it was a necessary move. I think it was dis, uh, disproportionate to the, to the issue that's in in dispute. And I think that the 
And again, uh, Michael, we've been saying for a number of weeks, and again, maybe this is because, and I, I mean this is no disrespect to the company in this regard, but obviously as a trade union, we're far more experienced in these issues. Uh, but I think we, we suggested four or five weeks ago, maybe even longer ago, that uh, a third-party facilitator could assist the process, could bring both parties together. I think that will challenge both parties. Uh, but again, it's something, uh, and Mr. Mulvey in particular, very experienced in these difficult disputes where there's a very low levels of trust between mm. the parties. So I think that that's a, a very positive move, and our focus is going to be moving to that uh, that process next week. What happens from here? You're to meet Kieran Mulvey, uh, obviously, but in terms of industrial action, what plans have you got, or when uh, will you restart industrial action? For people who have holidays booked and that type of thing, uh, can they expect disruption in the coming weeks? Well, as I say, Forces' focus now is going to be on getting this negotiation process to work. And at this point in time, no further strike notice has been issued by the Irish-based pilots. We're going to work hard to make a success of the negotiations. As I say, that's been made made more difficult by the company's actions over the last couple of weeks. And I suppose it has to be said, um, if the process were to fail, and we're we're not expecting it to fail, but if the negotiation process were to fail... Yeah, it, it is possible that there will be further strike action in the future. But we're trying to be positive now and uh, and use the intervention of Kieran Mulvey next week uh, to, to, to get this relatively simple problem cracked uh, and get back to normal in the airline. OK, so that means that we may be able to get uh, on a plane from Dublin to another country, uh, which is piloted by a, a, a uh, person who is employed by Ryanair here, but what about the rest of Europe uh, and uh, this uh, suggestion from the European Transport Workers Federation that the European Commission moves in here and regulates uh, across the airlines across the European continent? Well, um, I, mean, I have to stress that Forza can only and does only represent the directly employed pilots who are based in Ireland, so we're not involved in the in the other disputes. And I, I must confess, I haven't seen the statement that you refer to from the um, from the uh, Transport Federation. Um, I mean, I think what we, what we're seeing today, though, having said that, it does demonstrate that in the past couple of weeks, management has tried to paint its Irish pilots as outliers. It's been saying that. The company's doing deals, conducting successful negotiations elsewhere in Europe. Mm. But the fact that it's facing disputes in four other countries today, had disputes with cabin crew a couple of um, weeks ago in different countries again, Mm. I think that demonstrates that it's struggling with its industrial relations in many places. I'm not sure that uh, European-wide regulation is the solution to that, but certainly the company needs to up its game in terms of making real on its promise to uh, negotiate with trade unions in good faith. Uh, and what if it doesn't? What if uh, Ryanair sets out uh, to cripple the trade unions? Uh, because there is a, a theory that it has the wherewithal to face you down, regardless of what might be short-term consequences for Ryanair and confidence in it as a transport provider, uh, that it will see it through because of the clout and uh, the sheer wealth that it has. Well, that's not what it's, that's not its declared aim, and that's not that's not what it's said to us. Now, I mean, obviously, Ryanair has extremely deep pockets, deeper than the trade unions uh, involved, uh, certainly deeper than Forces pockets. Uh, but my, my my belief is that they that it, it, it's more it's more inexperience and sh- struggling to shake off an old culture rather than an, an attempt to 
uh, grind down the union. Indeed, it didn't have to make an announcement in December that it would recognise the union in order to take the position that you're outlining. So I don't think that that's where they're coming from. That's certainly not what they're telling us, and that's not what they're saying publicly or indeed to investors and shareholders. So hopefully that's not the case. But you know, next week we'll be in with probably the most experienced facilitator in Irish industrial relations, uh, and I think there's got to be some optimism that that will lead to a more positive uh, path. Mm, indeed, uh, and uh, there is also suggestion uh, that uh, the disquiet within the airline uh, is emanating from Dublin. If a peace is achieved here, uh, will it spread uh, to the other countries and uh, the members of the trade unions there? Well, that I can't say. I can't speak for the other unions. And as I said at the very outset of the interview, mm-hmm. the issues that are in dispute in other countries are different issues than the the one that we're dealing with. So I'm not quite sure where they're coming from. Um, you know, the, the, there are strikes today in five uh, bases, of, sorry, five countries of the many that Ryanair uh, organizes, uh, operates in. Um, so we'll... we'll We'll have to see, but I have to, I mean, frankly, I, I, I'm an observer as much as you are mm. uh, 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 with regard to what's happening in other jurisdictions. But an observer with a little bit more interest, perhaps, in if a pay claim of up to 42% would be successful in Germany. Well, let's see. I think, the, the as I understand it from the uh, from the press that I've read, the German pay claim is to do with uh, regularizing pay as much as anything else. That is to mm-hmm. say, uh, making, uh, turning, um, turning uh, bonus arrangements and things like that into, into basic pay. But uh, as I say, I, I follow it probably closer than most, but okay. not that closely. Okay, well, as you say, from the Irish perspective, uh, we get past today and uh, the dispute is parked uh, until uh, these uh, negotiations, uh, this mediation with Kieran Mul- Mulvey uh, takes place next week. Uh, and I think everybody will be hoping uh, that there will be some resolution. Thanks for joining us this morning, though, Bernard. Bernard Harbour, Head of Communications with Forza. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire is here with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Morning, Michael. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Have you been busy? Yeah, it has. It's been busy on the phones, but I'll actually start off with bringing you a little bit of a reaction that we had to our letter. Um, to the programme yesterday oh, yes. with, with the suggestion of um, everybody making a two euro contribution as the, um, in collection boxes on the way to the papal visit. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be to help the homeless. It seems all absolutely. the more timely today and especially when we're hearing once again that the homeless will be moved out of the city because of uh, the papal visit because people coming Comments, to see the Pope will yeah. want the hotel rooms and well, they're willing to pay for them. This is it, this mm. is it, exactly. Well, Mary from Navan was on to us and she doesn't agree with the suggestion. Um, she says that she would expect Pope Francis to bring a huge cheque to this country yeah. um, instead that we owe him nothing, that the Vatican is one of the richest states in the world, so why should we be giving them giving them money? So I think she maybe missed the point with regard to going to the homeless. But well, that's it. I, I imagine Francis uh, could... Uh opt to sell off one of those chalices and build enough houses for yeah. all the homeless in this country Absolutely. and maybe some more then, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. And John rang in to commend the letter writer for their generosity of spirit and their willingness to help the less fortunate, but he doesn't think that the idea is going to be a runner on the day. He says there's far too much hurt attached to the Catholic Church in this country and if the Pope really does follow through with his plan not to meet the survivors, well then John believes you'll find there'd be very few people who'd be willing to make any kind of con- contribution. Okay. 
yeah. Mm. So while it was while most people agreed it was a nice idea, they didn't really think it was a runner as such, you know. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it certainly was well intentioned, uh, but uh, there is uh, undoubtedly uh, many reasons uh, for thinking that the homeless should be helped, uh, and that there is many ways of uh, doing, it. doing it. Yeah. So. And then uh, moving on to uh, drink pricing, Angela wants to know if we could tell the listeners the name of some of the off license <laughs> off yeah. licenses where Una McKenney is buying his drink. This is Una McKenney of Alcohol Action Ireland who yeah. was telling us yesterday that you can buy a can of beer for 50 cent. Yeah, she wants to know if we could put the names of those businesses out so we could all get some cheap prices over we'll the weekend. All right, we'll <laughs> I'm really hoping that was a tongue-in-cheek <laughs> comment. But yeah. We'll send you an, uh, an, email, an email and see, and see if we can, can do. <laughs> I don't think you'd be too happy with us, so no, maybe not. Stay in touch, Angela. Uh, we'll try and get that information Absolutely, for you. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then Tommy was saying he doesn't think it's the price of um, alcohol in it, that's the problem in this country. It doesn't matter what price drink is, people will always find the money to buy it, sometimes even at the expense of buying food or paying their other bills. Mm. He says there's a really unhealthy attitude to drink in this country. It's involved in nearly every aspect of Irish life and this is wrong on so many levels. We need to encourage people to have a more sensible approach to drinking and to be responsible in our consumption of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, an odd argument, I think, or at least it's an argument that sounds odd to my ears uh, when they say, look, uh, we drink more than anywhere else. Else, mm. uh, alcohol is more expensive here than anywhere else yeah. uh, because they drink less than we do everywhere else because alcohol is it's cheaper cheaper everywhere else than it is here so yeah. let's increase the price of alcohol here that'll solve the problem yeah it does seem a little bit odd when you put mm. it like that in fairness yeah. now but you know yep Moving on to homelessness, okay. um, because it's obviously a, a big topic today with obviously the, the sad story of, of Margaret Cash and her children. And Sandra said it was absolutely shocking to see a mother with so many children left to stay in a Garda station or else face a night on the streets. She said it made her very sad um, just thinking about the state of the country and she wonders how the children are meant to have any semblance of a normal childhood. The family needs to be helped straight away and the government need to, yeah. to get their act in order, basically. Yeah, well, I don't think it's possible. I mean, the idea, I mean, I'm sure an awful lot of people have seen these photographs if you haven't seen them, uh, they're on the internet or you'll uh, just have to walk into a news yeah. agency. That's, uh, the family are pictured on the front page uh, of most of uh, the newspapers uh, this morning, but it really looks like an awful situation for anybody hurts, to find yeah. themselves in. It you know what I mean? If you missed a train yeah. and you had to sleep like that, you, yeah. you'd be giving out yards. Yeah, uh, You but, see people sleep like that at the airport and stuff like that when flights yeah. are delayed, but like mm, the fact yeah. that yeah, she'd know where to go and bring her, her little yeah. kids with her. Like, it was just horrific to see the kids sleeping like that, I have to say. You know? Dreadful, yeah. yeah. And such young, innocent children. Absolutely. Mm. That's it, exactly. Um- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. David, on that subject, was mm. saying he wonders if a guard is stationed late at night where a guard might be processing um, criminals who may be drunk or on drugs is the yep. safest place for a young family to stay. No. Um, he the said, guards say it's yeah, not. Yeah, the guards yeah. say it's yeah. not. And he, that's, he mm. made the point, yeah. like, at best, it's disruptive to the work of the guardie and it's entirely shameful that the country has come to this. Mm. Um, Deirdre was also commenting on it um, she was alarmed by the, by the pictures and said it was very sad to see that, that young mum and her kids having to stay in the guard station overnight she's saying the huge amount of money that it's going to cost to bring the Pope to Ireland might have been better spent looking after some some families like this or families mm. in this situation okay. and again homelessness again it was the big topic on the phones this morning Eugene is wondering um, what it is that's stopping local authorities from setting up beds in unused buildings in our towns and cities to provide shelter and accommodation for the homeless on our streets it, he's he's asking like is it worries about insurance or building regulations and mm. stopping it from happening he makes the point that surely any shelter even if it's not in like a, a designated mm. residential building is better than having people sleeping out in the streets well, I, I don't know I mean I, I, I don't think uh, the council would use my house uh, I don't think the council I don't think my house my own house yeah. would uh, meet the standards of council housing yeah. uh, for bear ratings and uh, different things like that. Uh, and there's a, a lot of houses uh, that a lot of us live in mm. that are not good enough for the council to rent out. Yeah, and I, I get that point. Like, mm. But at the same time, surely having somebody in a safe, confined space like in a house, it may not mm. be up to council standards as such, but it could well, be Well, I'm happy in my house. Absolutely, most people are. I, yeah. I pay a mortgage on it. Yeah. Uh, I get up every morning to live <laughs> in it. Yeah, so it does you well. So. It does me well. Yeah, so... I but mean, I actually, I, I, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stir it. Yeah. I really think that the council would have to do significant repairs or refurbishment or mm. whatever uh, to bring it up to the standards, the criteria that council houses require uh, and I, I think there's an awful lot of people living in houses in this country that are not good enough for the council to rent out to people. Yeah, but see, that's just madness. Like, you know, I mean, as you say, you're living in a comfortably, as are hundreds of people in houses across yeah. the country. Mm. And, you know, fine, they mightn't be up to council standards, but I think I'd prefer to stay in a house like yours or mine mm. or whoever yeah. than sleep in a doorway somewhere mm. with my child or, yeah. you know, whatever. I just, I don't I don't get it. It's just madness, to be mm. honest with you. Mm. But, um, yeah, well, I suppose the council have the reasons for doing what they're doing, don't they? Well, yeah, they do. And, I mean, we don't want to go back uh, to the old days uh, when people lived in tenement buildings mm. uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, the bedsits uh, that they outlawed uh, not too long ago were really dire places for people to live and yeah. damp-ridden places and all that. And, of course, you need standards. Uh, but I think sometimes the standards are a little bit beyond our means. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps, yeah, that would be great in an ideal world. But this is not an ideal world. Far in fact, it. it's far from an yeah, ideal far world. From yeah. it. Mm. And I do think it's more important mm. to have people in a safe building than yeah. sleeping out in the street. Mm. Like we're sleeping in a guard station on a plastic chair when you're one, mm. years, one years of age or mm. three years of age. It's just, mm. 
it's horrific. Yeah, to, yeah. You know. it really is heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 Um, and staying on that, we did have a comment in from Mary. She's saying she's no desire to be cruel about this story because obviously it's heartbreaking, but she is just curious to know where the father of the children is in this scenario and if he might be in a position to help out in any way, shape or form. Mm. Well, I don't know the answer to that, uh, mm. but uh, I'm not going to uh, try to answer it. I uh, presume uh, that... Uh, you know, the answer is no. Uh, so let's move on from it. And it's not particularly relevant, you yeah. know. Um, Margaret was in, or sorry, Mary was mm. in contact with us as well about Margaret and her children. And she said it was heartbreaking to hear Paul Murphy say that when some people saw the pictures of the children sleeping on the chairs in the Garda station, their first thought was to ask why the mother had so many children. Mm. Um, she was saying, like, what's wrong with people? Why was this their first reaction mm. when they saw those babies? Because that's what they are, they're babies. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it goes scenario. back to the conversation we had with Fergus O'Dell the other day and yeah. social media and people get on there yeah. and they know everything and they put the world right in two seconds uh, without a second thought yeah, for from anything. The comfort yeah. Of their, yeah. from the comfort of their sitting room, mm-hmm. which they're lucky enough to have, yeah. unlike Margaret and her kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. She's just saying, um, have we really become that kind of country where our first thought is to kick people when they're already experiencing a low in their life? Have, yeah, I think oh, yeah, I think we're long, long, long past. since, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. She says, it doesn't matter if Margaret has seven or 17 children. The simple fact is that she and her family should never have had to sleep in a guard station mm. because she'd know where else to go. Um, she's saying, it's exactly as you said, Michael, these children are innocent in all of this and deserve to be treated better and looked after by yeah. the authorities. Yeah. Uh, and regardless of Margaret's story or how they ended up in that situation, it was certainly not of the children's doing. No, absolutely mm-hmm. not. And John O'Brien in, in Navin was on to us um, with a couple of comments this morning and he was mm. just saying the calls are being made to make extra funding available in the budget for the likes of the back to school allowance, extra money for the pension, housing, etc. But we have to ask where this extra money is supposed to come from. As it stands at the minute, there's 1.5 million people in the country where aren't contributing anything in taxes and John feels this is very unfair he says there's all this talk of increasing taxes for the wealthy but how is that even why should those who earn more bear the brunt all the time surely the onus is on everyone to pay their share yeah let's tax the poor well he's just saying he thinks everybody should be taxed really I suppose mm, you know, that's yeah let's tax the poor okay he also was making an, mm. a, another point to me on the phone um, which was a little bit out of, it's not in connection with today mm. but he was making the point that he was watching the news the other day and he w- he thought he was reliving April Fool's Day when he heard it announced that Cork County Council are planning to spend two million to make a habitat for snails he said he almost had to check the calendar to make sure it was August and not April and he thinks it's a disgraceful use of state funding it's no wonder the country has been laughed at all over the world there's so many sectors that could use that funding and we're using it to cater for snails Okay John thanks for that So we leave the last word to John for today Thank I think anyway Alright thanks for that Maggie Now we're going to talk about the papal visit in a couple of weeks from now once again with Augustinian priest Father Iggy O'Donovan indeed some of the teachings of the church but before we do that Iggy can we talk Talk about this story that is dominating the minds and hearts of so many people and the shameful photographs of Margaret Cash and six of her, her children sleeping in Talagarda Station on Wednesday night. It seems to some degree and undoubtedly unwittingly that the Pope is, to some degree, responsible for this. Well, if ever a picture I suppose painted a, th- uh, painted a thousand words, that picture did yesterday because it went viral and um, a mother, and it, was it six young children? Mm. So, that, I mean, that's it. And coming from the, if you like, the privileged background I have, where we all have our own rooms and well looked after and uh, so forth, I, I, it, it did cross my mind, curiously enough, yesterday, the enormous contrast in the life of me as a churchman and that that mother. It but it, my mind. isn't it ironic uh, that people will be travelling to Dublin to see the 
Pope uh, and uh, obviously uh, looking to get rooms and hotels if you can at this stage. Uh, but as a yeah. result of that, people will have to move out. Yeah, but then I suppose any big event of any sort, that, OK, this is bigger than most, any big event of any sort, say the All-Ireland weekend, the following weekend and so forth, it will be, it just leads to a shortage of accommodation. But, but at any rate, Michael, I think the underlying problem as to why that lady was in the Garda station, homeless and so forth, that the temporary availability of hotel rooms, mm. of the temporary non-availability because of the Pope's visit, is that they're really simply, that, that's the minor side of it. The bigger side is the underlying problem. Mm. Whether giving her a hotel room on a temporary basis is like you're putting a band-aid over a cancer. Really, you've got to get a lot deeper than that. And clearly, in our society, with our roaring Celtic tiger again, really some boats are so far up the strand that no tide seems to be able to lift them. Mm, Okay, well the photographs uh, as uh, Paul Murphy put it earlier on in the programme spoke a thousand words to so many people who are waking up to this problem that we're talking about all of the time and perhaps uh, with minds focused uh, it will lead to some change. The Pope will be here in a couple of weeks and uh, undoubtedly people will be staying in hotels which may compound that particular problem Uh, but there's a, a few problems to contend with uh, along the way to him getting here and indeed the negative publicity in particular in relation uh, to child sexual abuse, what Dermot Ahern has been saying about Cardinal Angelo Savano and what uh, Mary McAleese has been saying about the Vatican's efforts uh, to uh, suppress uh, the information by uh, not uh, making available the files uh, on clerical abuse. Yeah. Uh, this has not been a good week for the church. No, it has not been. And um, you refer there to the sex abuse scandals and the apparent efforts to use Mary McAleese and Dermot Ahern to, in some way, get documents suppressed, which, to their credit, to their credit, both of them resisted strongly. But uh, the only pity is we didn't hear about this years ago, incidentally. But anyway, the um, apart from the horrors of the sex abuse, where really we as a church got damaged was how we handled it. And say the, the efforts to muzzle or to get um, Dermot Ahern and Mary McAleese to get the documentation, say, withheld would be, you know, just typical of the reaction because it wasn't so much the initial scandal as the handling of it that has really made it the mother of all problems for the church. And I'm afraid the wounds we're suffering, and they're very deep wounds, have been largely self-inflicted in that regard. And that's the, 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 that's the killing point for many of us, largely self-inflicted. I recall just a simple example, and it might resonate in Drogheda a little bit there, that uh, as a response to some of that problem at the time, I remember some years ago, we invited in the Augustinian in Drogheda, we invited Colm O'Gorman as a survivor and a very eloquent spokesperson for the survivors. I remember it well, yes. To speak to us. Mm. And we were instructed, instructed from our ma, and I'm saying this now clearly out, we were literally instructed to withdraw Colm's invitation. It was not acceptable that he speak to the people in the Augustinian Rohada. And I was forced, I was already under a cloud for other things, if you like, but I was forced, under orders from Armagh, to withdraw that invitation. OK, it had the effect of even more publicity, if you like, but that's what happened. But that was symptomatic of the, uh, the um, imbecilic, incompetent way these things were handled. Because in that case of Colm O'Gorman, what was a little molehill? They managed to make it into a mountain. And the same has been true of the handling of so much else. 
So if Pope Francis comes in two weeks' time and will be facing a church that's so much different from what his predecessor faced in 1979. Mm. Okay, many problems but many of them self-created. Yeah, and he'll hear from uh, people on numerous issues uh, uh, and indeed uh, gay marriage being one of uh, them, not to mention contraception. Uh, you're yes. a supporter of both, are you? Uh, because uh, Well, when I think of it in 1979, you mentioned contraception. Mm. Well, Anyone I mentioned the... both uh, and quite yeah. intentionally so because of what Kevin Doran, the Bishop of Elfin, has been yeah. saying that uh, this contraceptive mentality has led to a support for gay marriage. Well, my approach to contraception is that it's a, a decision for ordinary, mature people to make for themselves. And I'm very conscious that as we ageing celibates, we've made such a mess of it. I keep, I keep out of the bedroom, but they are strictly. So uh, in any event, mm. 90% of Catholics have made up their minds on that one anyway. And, and they've spoken, and we know how they've spoken. Mm. On the, uh, the, you, you mentioned what was it, gay marriage? Yes. Yes. Well, I made no secret of the fact that... Uh, I, I had no problem with that referendum. In fact, I supported it, and I wrote publicly and said so at the time. And because, um, whereas I might have a view on Catholic marriage, which I support, well, that's true, but I realised many other people, free-thinking, mature, good Catholics, some of them good friends of mine, mm. uh, have, uh, this is, they have opted for their, their partners, same-sex partners, that, that is their orientation, that is where they have found love, that is where they have found fulfilment, and I am happy to support them in that. Love? I might, love? I well, might, what's love got to do with it? I, I mean, the argument here... It has everything to do with it. Well, I think, I, I, well, if I can just put the point, I, I think the argument here is that sex is lust for animals, uh, but a way of procreating for humans. Okay, it's a way of procreating, and it's interesting that the real experts on this have been people who, in theory, have not procreated at all. But, <laughs> well, yes, okay. but, but that is yes, the argument, anyway. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, that, no, that, that I think it, it, it is official Catholic teaching that whereas procreation is, par- is part of the sex act, certainly, but that the overall marriage is bigger than that. It is the mm. overall relationship and the mutual love and respect for each other, and there's more to it than simply procreation. In any event, many heterosexual married Catholics do not have not procreated at all. Are they, is their marriage something to live? It is not. No, but uh, perhaps they are still within the teachings of the Church because, as Bishop Doran explained it, Humanae Vitae teaches that every act of intercourse should be open in principle to the gift of life, but also that it's perfectly legitimate for married people to make use of the married cycle, both to achieve pregnancy and to avoid it. Uh, But that it is at least, if you have intercourse, uh, that it's open to the gift of life. In other words, that it's a man and a woman and that she could become pregnant because she hasn't taken contraception yeah. and that it is between a man and a woman because it's only a man and a woman that can create another life. Sure. Yeah, and that's the, and look, many of these things are great things, aspirations to be aimed at. They're not qualities to be boasted about. And uh, so that uh, I, I, for one, that I take it that the Lord also speaks through his people, not through, just through a group of elderly celibates who ha- happen to be ruling the church but to the ordinary people. And the fact that 90% plus of ordinary Catholics have made up their own minds in this, some of them use contraception, some don't, is 
surely the Spirit is speaking to us some way through the voice of ordinary baptized Catholics who are equally Christian to me, are equally Christian to Pope Francis, and indeed, uh, dare I say it, equally Christian to some of the bishops. The bishop has been saying that it's impinged upon the dignity of women and that it puts them in a position where they're not able to say no when they don't want sex. Look, I, who came from a family of 10 and saw the, the, in all, the, the, I, I'm not so sure in the, in the past, the distant past, women were ever in a position where they were easily able to say no. Mm. Because the, the old teaching for many centuries spoke of the men's, what they used to call conjugal rights. <laughs> yes. These were the rights. Absolutely. And yes. she, was mm. to, she was to fulfill these rights. Yes. In fact, I think the modern women are in a much better position to say no and are doing so. And many of them, the very backbone of our church. Ironically, it is the women who are the backbone of the church. It's strange irony there, but that is true. Mm. Well, if a man believes in conjugal rights, uh, he could find himself on a a rape charge. Uh, But in terms of whether uh, you can justify saying no to your husband, let's say, within a healthy relationship, uh, well can be that you don't want to have more children uh, but you don't have that excuse. I think this is what the bishop is arguing if uh, you're using contraception. Look, I think the bishop would do well to stop digging, to be honest now on this one. And that, 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 that's putting it as the most charitable. Look, he's just got the wrong end of the stick here. Mm. Let's, let's leave it at that. That argument is finished, Michael. Okay, well yeah. it, it seems odd that I'm arguing this with you, Father. Yeah, it, it it does. But uh, I think in some ways, Michael, here and there, your tongue is perilously close to your cheek. Mm. <laughs> yes. But it, it is. Uh, but this is the teachings of your church. It is. But as I say, we have, like, somebody might say, that, look, we have the Ten Commandments, most of which we manage to break every day. That doesn't mean we get rid of them. They are aspirations to be aimed at. They are not realities we will always reach. And in the everyday makeup of the ups and downs of human life and the comings and goings of family life, and the idea that I can nowadays say that to a young person, a couple, that every sex act they engage in must be open to procreation. And therefore, if they want to have ending up, is often what used to be the case of 10 or 12 kids. And I'm not criticizing the old families. I come from a family of 10 myself. But... Uh, I, I just find it as an unspeakable, arrogant interference in the life of a young couple. I, I, come up, I, I, I simply don't know where Bishop Doran is coming from. Simply we're on different wavelengths. That's all I can say. Mm. Uh, Minister Harris uh, responded to this uh, on uh, the internet saying, please just make it stop. Uh, yeah. you're, you're, you're more in line with that uh, line of thought. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Minister Harris and again Shane Ross recently on the GAA, Liam Miller thing, Sometimes they feel that they jump on these issues because uh, things like homelessness and the creaking transport system are more difficult to talk about. But at any event, no, but I, the sentiment of I can see where Mr. Harris, as a young Catholic himself, is coming from. And uh, really, uh, things have moved on so much. When you think of it, when Pope John Paul was here in 1979, that was the year of Mr. Hawhey's so-called Irish solution to an Irish problem, where you could get a condom with a doctor's prescription. I mean, nowadays, there's probably younger listeners out there thinking that I'm having you on. No, that has happened. 1979, that piece of legislation went through Dáil Ireland and barely got through Dáil Ireland as a hugely liberal breakthrough. When, in fact, um, uh, 
things have moved on so much. Mm. So, so in fact, I'd say much of our talk this morning on contraception, Michael, younger listeners simply, I'd say they're probably wondering what we're on about. Uh, the bishop was talking about IVF being murderous then. Do you agree with that? No, I do not. In fact, IVF has created life and given happy family life to many childless couples and others who had difficulty in procreating mm. and to use that term murderous. Murderous of whom? Well, the bishop uh, was saying that uh, you choose the embryos that seem the most healthy or the most viable, and what does that say to disabled people? If it were designed in such a way as to, um, if you say, sorry, I'm, I'm just, I want to use the right term here, mm. weeding out disabled people, but uh, certainly that was something that would appall me, and I would agree him on that if that were the case. But the um, IVF, in fact, has been has brought enormous good to so many people and created so many happy families to people who were not in a position to procreate naturally themselves mm. and did need this uh, medical uh, uh, and um, scientific intervention. And uh, I say God bless it because I do know of cases where it has brought enormous happiness. Okay, it- to, to pick holes in it as a murderous thing, I think, is of OTT. OK, I've got to quote uh, the Bishop now. If uh, listeners have young children on holidays, uh, perhaps... Uh, they'd guard their ears or turn the radio off uh, because uh, it's pretty crude for what uh, the bishop had to say. He said uh, that in order uh, for IVF to work, uh, you need pornography. Uh, He said, I'm not going to talk about the fact that men have to masturbate to get the sperm, which couples say is a very unpleasant experience. It's very clinical. It has nothing to do with love. And very often, to be able to do that, men watch porn. And that means using another person. Yes. That is to say, well, it men watch porn, but uh, really, I, 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 I simply don't understand where the bishop is coming from here. Okay, for IVF, samples have to be obtained and under medical supervision and so forth. And I know that this may, goodness, I'm no expert here. I, I'm, of all people, that uh, certain levels of stimulation may be required, mm. but to put that into the field of pornography and so forth, I think is going so over the top that actually the bishop is seriously damaging his own argument. Okay, well, uh, as uh, you've agreed, though, uh, a lot of this is uh, in line with the teaching of the church, uh, and uh, we'll undoubtedly have a, a lot more talk of this yes, sort but of when we, when, we, when we say the church, Michael, mm-hmm. you're ta- there's, there's a, a billion, 200 million, 1,200 million Catholics around the world an infinitesimally tiny number of whom happen to be clergy, and declining numbers of them too. And there are so many varied views, cultures, circumstances, contexts, that that we can simply, in one line, sum up all those people's lives and how they might live intimately, how they might or might not procreate. I think that's just, it's just so absurd. Okay. That, well, and, and that then, really, the bishop, I mean, the damage was, I, I spoke earlier about the self-inflicted wounds. We shoot ourselves in the foot so often, Michael, that I've said before, it's, it's a wonder we have any toe left. <laughs> really. The greatest <laughs> anti-clerical atheist wouldn't damage us more than this. Mm. You know, they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I know you're making a serious point and I don't mean to laugh uh, but uh, it's yeah. a, a very uh, graphic way of putting it. Uh, thanks uh, for joining yeah, us. But, uh, but here I'm one of those here at the, at the, at the coalface trying the best I can to make, trying to say that look, my Catholicism can be reconciled with modernity. We're not some medieval, old-fashioned, silly superstition. Mm. 
Well, Ironically, that's the image we often paint of ourselves, when in fact we have a glorious message, a brand to sell. We don't need bloody well get out and do it. Okay, well, get it, out it, to people's bedrooms. It, it, it's your bishop that you're talking to, I'm afraid, uh, but we leave it there for the moment, Diggy. Thanks, uh, as always, uh, for joining us. I've just been asked uh, to mention that the North Quay in Drogheda is closed, and if you're driving, uh, be aware of uh, delays in the area that's in around the North Quay in Drogheda today. Our thanks there to Iggy O'Donovan, Augustinian priest. There's been a, a lot of uh, attention uh, this week once again on reform of Angarda Siakana, once again on the slow pace of reform of Angarda Siakana, and uh, another report from uh, the policing authority. The fifth report from the authority, though, is focusing more on the obstacles to reform than the pace of that reform. It also is critical of the Gardaí's ability to deter people from drinking and driving and says that despite an increase in resources in roads policing, there's a reduced level of detections of life-saver offences like drink driving compared to 2017. It's also critical of how people are not being breathalyzed following a serious or a fatal collision. 42% of drivers have not been tested in serious injury collisions and 22% of drivers have not been tested in fatal collisions. This is between 2004 and 2016. Susan Gray is chairperson of the Road Safety Group Park and on the line. And Susan, this is something uh, that you would have expected to have been in place for some time, given the length of time that you've been campaigning for automatic breathalysing of people involved in serious collisions. Yes, my thoughts. Uh, sold signs for because we fought and campaigned so long for five years to get uh, mandatory testing of all drivers involved in serious and fatal collisions. Now, it came in in, uh, in June 2011. Minister Varadkar was the Minister for Transport at the time and he enacted that piece of legislation. And then in 2014, we ensured that there was legislation put in place that if a driver feigned injury or was injured and was taken to hospital, that that driver would also be tested for alcohol. And here we are now, what, seven years later since the first law was introduced, and the policing authorities giving us figures showing that some guard, or many Gardaí who are obliged to test at crash scenes or in the hospital or guard the station afterwards. They're not doing so. And that is exactly the problem. It's in the case of injury or hospitalisation that the drivers are not being breathalysed. And it's having massive consequences uh, for families, brief families that have lost loved ones in fatal crashes and others that have been seriously injured because... To the day they die, they will now never know if the person that killed or injured their loved one, that if um, alcohol was a contributory factor in a crash. And I suppose to some degree that is the point you don't know, uh, but uh, whilst they may be teetotal and there may have been no alcohol involved, uh, if there was, uh, well then people have a right to know and there should be a consequence for that. Yes, and if they haven't been drinking, it's not fair in that driver 
because there will be talk, especially with the drink culture we have in Ireland. It's it's just totally unfair. And we fought so long for this. What was it all for, Michael? And are any of these guards been disciplined for failing to do their duty? Do you think they realise that they're failing? Are they, are, are they aware of what their duty is? Do you think that they're uh, aware that they're failing to do their duty? Well, that's another massive problem with the art. We would assume and like to think that they're reading up on legislation and they know what the law is. But they have supervisors. And when the CT68 form is filled out, that's the form the Gardaí must fill out after attending a fatal crash. And we got the form updated in 2014 to ensure that not only there was a field in the form for the Gardaí that they must fill out, stating that they carried out a breath test. But if they didn't, what the reason was. Now, we know that some Gardaí are still using the old excuse to form their opinion that there was no need to test, there's no alcohol involved. That discretionary power is gone from the Gardaí. They lost that in 2011. So why are some Gardaí still using this as an excuse? Hmm. Other Gardaí we know are saying that they didn't have a breathalyzer at the time and that they didn't realise that they had the power through legislation to detain the driver for one hour at the scene Mm. to enable them to obtain a breathalyzer. That excuse is just totally unacceptable. And we believe that the policing authority, that their figures may very well, they don't include the latest figures. So we would believe that the the problem is escalating. So Gardaí are acting outside of the law, but they're also being allowed to act outside of the law. You say they have supervisors. supervisors. Yes. And we know of supervisors that are putting on complaints when they realise that the Gardaí at the scene has not done his job properly. Mm. Then we're going down the road as the chief superintendent disciplining that guard. um, explaining that this cannot happen again or are they turning a blind eye because they don't want to be seen by Garda headquarters as somebody who cannot um, control or controls the wrong word to manage their um, district Mm. properly and to ensure that but the, the good news in this story is we have the policing authority now. And either they can't manage their staff or they don't want to. Yeah, they don't want to be because this isn't an odd to case. have a problem mm. in their district where they're responsible for their their guardie. Mm. But that's what I'm saying. Either they can't manage their staff and they don't want their superiors to know that or um, they're uh, just uh, not able to because we're not talking about a, a, a nod or that, that, that they don't want to manage them, that they don't want them to do this uh, because we're not talking about a, a nod case. We're talking about 22% in fatal collisions uh, not being breath tested. Yes. And I believe the policing authorities, them cases, they're only referring to people that were taken to hospital and not breathalyzed, not tested there. But 
we believe from the the information we're getting that there is just as big a problem, or not bigger, on people who have not been injured, drivers, and who have not been tested, even at the scene. Never mind the ones that's going to hospital. So, but for the policing authority, we believe are doing a brilliant job. They're the oversight body. We don't believe they have enough powers, but at least they're monitoring the Gardaí. The Gardaí know they're monitoring. They've got access to their documents and their post system and databases. So anything the Gardaí don't do properly, not only is the policing authority following or watching that and knowing, but they're bringing that information into the public domain now through the media. Now, to us, that was essential because the media now are reporting it and it means when the media get hold of it, the whole country knows what is the reality of what's going on out there. Okay. It can't be hidden anymore. Well, it gives us all food for thought this morning. Susan, thank yeah. you indeed for joining us. As always, Susan Gray is uh, the chairperson of PARC. Wednesday will mark uh, the 20th anniversary of uh, the OMA bombing. It was the 15th of August in 1998, which saw 29 people, including a woman pregnant with twins, die as a result of a car bombing that injured some 220 others. Michael Gallagher, spokesperson for the OMA Bomb Victims Group, is on the line. Good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for joining us. Your son, Aidan, was 21 at the time. Hard, I imagine, to think of him today if he had lived through it, as is the case with all of the victims, and which was the worst atrocity on this island throughout the period of the Troubles. Remind us of what happened. Hello, good morning, Michael. What, what, what happened that morning, that Saturday morning, it was a, it was a pretty mixed weather sort of um, couple of months, uh, what we call a bad summer, but on the on the uh, Saturday morning, it was a beautiful, bright morning, and uh, we had a small car repair business, and I went there to work on our own car, getting it ready for the test. And I came back about lunchtime, and uh, I, I said to my wife in the kitchen, has Aidan been up yet? Because I knew he was out uh, the night before. And she says, oh, yes, he's been out, and he paid some bills, and he's upstairs changing He's going to pick up his friend Michael Barrett and go down the town for a pair of jeans. And um, while while I was there, Aidan came into the kitchen. He stood at the door and he talked about the size of the jeans, the leg and the waist, because my wife normally bought them for him. And um, I remember saying to him, don't worry about it, they'll put a tape on you. And we had a short conversation. I told him the best place to park the car because it would have been quiet. And, uh, you know, he turned and he walked down the hall and he looked back for the last time and he said, I won't be long. And that was the last time we seen Aidan. He went into town and he died with 30 other people. 
Yeah, at the time, little more than a, a boy, he'd be a mature man now in his 40s. I'm sure you often think of uh, the life he should have had, uh, the things that he should have done, uh, the marriage he might have had, the children uh, that he might have had, the grandchildren that you might have had as a result, and the things that were denied to all of you. Of course. Uh, I mean, he, he was 21. He lived at home with us. He um, he was somebody that was a great help. He was a great um, power of energy in the house to get things done. And Kata's sister was one year younger. She was at university at the time. And, you know, you talk about what could have been. Uh, you're quite right that Friendly went down the town with that day, was badly injured, but um, physically he recovered. And he's uh, now got two children and... Yeah, it's it's not just the life that Aidan could have had, it's the life all of us could have had because when you rear children, one of the joys you have is that they will come and do things for you, even if it's only clean the windows, you know, uh, and you don't have to rely or pay somebody else. It's um, everything has just been, you know, wiped away. And I think... He he was somebody that that had and could have made a good contribution to the society that he lived in, um, but he was denied that, as you say, like all the other people. And Michael, you've been a, a great campaigner for justice for Aidan, uh, the others who died and those who were injured uh, over all of uh, the last uh, two decades uh, in the media and in the courts and in any way possible to you to bring about justice. Uh, but of course... Uh, I'm sure I'm right in saying that there's two strands to this. Uh, it's justice for Aidan, but it's also remembering Aidan. And this weekend is a, a chance uh, to remember those uh, who were victims of the OMA bombing. And there's two uh, occasions uh, on Sunday and on Wednesday. Is that right? That's right, Michael. We have, on the Sunday, we, we, we have um, organised this service for the past 15 years. The council ran the first five years. And we have an interdenominational service. We have all the main churches. Uh, we have some important dignitaries coming, and including Minister Humphrey. Um, it's it it is a. I feel it when I leave the garden, I'm more uplifted than when I came into the garden, and I think there's something special about communal worship, about people coming together, and praying together, and their song, uh, the Oma Peace Choir that was formed after the Oma bomb uh, from young people in the town has been very successful worldwide and the director of music has written a song specially for the 20th anniversary. So we're looking forward to hearing that Mm. and there's going to be a lot of young people uh, who has been in the choir over the years and has moved on with their lives. Um, A number of them are coming back to join us on Sunday and I think it will be um, a really fitting tribute to those people that died 20 years ago and yeah. I think we you know we remembrance is important to all of us and of course this year all the more important uh, because it's the 20th anniversary uh, but you feel snubbed and disrespected uh, because uh, despite uh, inviting Leo Radker and uh, Karen Bradley the Taoiseach and uh, the Secretary of State uh, for the North have uh, declined the invitations I think I think that it, it was particularly yes it, 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 I think um, you know 
uh, I was delighted to see uh, Leo Varadkar get the position of Taoiseach. I think he is a charismatic figure. I think he's bringing new energy and he is a modern man coming from a background that, uh, we, you know, is not traditional in Ireland. It's a breath of fresh air, in other words. And I think, yes, I think it, for to spend one hour with the families in the garden would have been hugely uh, uplifting. It would have meant that, you know, that we have that we are still in the thoughts of people in high places. I mean, M- Minister Humphrey will get a really warm welcome, and we're delighted to see her. But I think it would have been really uh, important for the T-shirt to come. And for Karen Bradley, I think it's, I think that, you know, there's during their terms, there are a lot more frivolous things that they do attend and get involved in. And uh, it is particularly disappointing that they didn't come. Not but it will not in any way dampen the, um, you know, the, 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 the service that we will have. It will be, uh, as I said, an uplifting service. And I'm sure it will be very well attended by people locally and much further away. And it's not just for the victims or those who were injured. It's for the whole community and the wider country. And I would say to any of your listeners that if they they had an hour to spend on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock to four, I think uh, that it, it, it would be very nice to see them there and... I think that they would also gain something from that. I'm sure many of our listeners would like to show solidarity with you and the other families. Michael, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Gallagher, spokesperson for the OMA Bomb Victims Group, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. 